He's not here. We pray for Clint, and he's not here. We got an empty chair. Anyway, Clint, uh, of course, Murray State playing this weekend, and many of you I know disappointed at the uh, the end of the season. And uh, but anyway, uh, no hard fought efforts on both the men's and certainly on the women's sides as well. And so, uh, uh, but it's baseball season now, so we're all happy. So <clears throat> anyway, let's pray together. How about that? All right, Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here. We thank you for uh, the smiles that we can have on our faces in in the house of worship. Lord, together as a church family, we pray, Lord, that as we look at your scripture, that you would speak your words this morning, not mine, but yours. So open our hearts and our minds and pour into us what we so desperately need, and that is a word from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said over and over, and I really believe it's true because I've tried it, that, that the hardest thing to do in sports is to hit a baseball. Hank and I actually just were talking about hitting. As a matter of fact, you wonder what we were talking about down here. We were talking about hitting. He asked me a question about something, and so we talked about hitting a little bit. It's one of those things we talk about quite a bit because it's so hard to do. Some of you have tried before, and you know how difficult it can be to do that simple little looking thing. It looks so easy. And yet, if you look at the science behind it, a pitcher in the major leagues throwing from a pitching plate that is 60 feet 6 inches from the front of home plate, by the time that he strides out and releases the ball, he's somewhere around 50 feet at his release point to home plate. And in that time, if he throws even just a 90 mile an hour fastball, which is below major league average, if he throws a 90 mile an hour fastball, the hitter has less than four tenths of a second to recognize what kind of pitch it is, where it's going, how fast it's going, and to swing and hit the ball as squarely as he possibly can. Less than four tenths of a second. That's tough to do. Trust me, because I've tried it. I wasn't good enough to do it at that level. And so it's hard to do doing something like that in sports. And and yet, as difficult as, as that is, hitting a baseball, I really believe, is easy compared to what Jesus demands of his disciples and what we're going to look at this morning. I mean, it is, I'd be willing to go stand in the batter's box against a Roldis Chapman throwing 103 miles an hour as opposed to saying, okay, Lord, I guess I'll give this a shot. What we're going to look at today and next week is the hardest thing to do and the next week the second hardest thing to do. And I really believe that there is nothing more difficult in life than what we will see that Jesus teaches today. And I don't say that for hyperbole or for effect. I really believe it. The more that I look at this and the more that I study it and the more that I know myself, this is the most difficult thing in all of life to do. We're in a series that will continue over the next several weeks called Thy Kingdom Come. If you've been with us, you know about this. If you haven't, let me catch you up just a little bit. In the Lord's Prayer, which you may be familiar with, there's a part of it that says, Thy Kingdom Come, Thy will be done. And essentially, that's the prayer that God wants all of us praying, is, Lord, thy kingdom come. If God's kingdom were to come in our lives, it would mean that his rule, his authority, is all that we're worried about in every aspect of life, that that it touches and invades and controls all of us. When Jesus showed up on the scene for his public ministry, beginning in around Matthew chapter 4, he starts preaching. And he says, the very first preaching words that he gives are, repent, For the kingdom of God 
is near or is at hand. It means he's, he's bringing it. It's here. The rule of God is here. And so this long-awaited, long-hoped-for kingdom of God, the rule of God that had been promised through all the Old Testament, finally shows up in Jesus. But as we have seen so far, and as we'll continue to see, it was different from what people thought. It's different from what they had looked forward to. He brought a different kind of kingdom, one that would work on the inside of them and then work its way out. They wanted an outside-in kingdom. He brought an inside-out kingdom. Our question and guiding principle through all of this series so far has been, what would it look like if God's kingdom truly did come in our lives? If we truly meant the prayer in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. What would that look like if God's kingdom really did rule and reign in our individual lives and in our church? What would it be like? And so we're continuing our study this morning. We're looking in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're familiar with this a little bit. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus gives what we know is the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look this morning specifically at Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Jesus so far in the Sermon on the Mount has told them what kind of character they are to have in the Beatitudes. That's uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. He's told them they can expect some persecution and some trouble. He's told them they're the salt and light of the world. He's told them that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill everything, and that their righteousness needs to go beyond the outside stuff and really invade the inside of their lives. And so he begins to teach them, beginning in around Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you've heard this is the law, but let me tell you what it really means. Let me tell you really how you've missed the point, he's saying. And we've looked at a few of those, things like uh, the hatred in our hearts and how that's murder, the lust in our hearts and how that's adultery. We've looked at at how the the yes and yes be yes, no be no kind of thing is just having us tell the truth and so on. And so we arrived this morning at at some words that you'll be very familiar with, I believe, as we get to them. Look with me in Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, And don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now next week we'll pick up on the theme of loving your enemies, but I think that's the second hardest thing to do. Because I believe the hardest thing to do in life is presented in these few verses. Look again in verse 38. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now he's quoting Old Testament scripture. He's he's quoting what really was the law. God had said, and if you want to write these references down, uh, this, this is where it's found. Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 to 24. Exodus 21, 23 to 24. He says, this is what it is to be. Here's the retribution, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In Leviticus chapter 24, 19 to 20. Leviticus 24, 19 to 20, he says the same thing. This is the way that it is set up. If this happens, if an eye is taken, then an eye is required. Tooth is taken, tooth is required. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. Deuteronomy 19, 21, same thing. So in, in at least three different occasions in the Old Testament, this law is given, and it is set up as a way, here's how justice is to be served. 
Now, what's this about, this, this whole law of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? Maybe you've heard that. Anybody ever heard that before I read it this morning? How many have heard it? Just raise your hand. Play along. There you go. Most of you. If you hadn't heard it, now you have. So you should have raised your hand, right? Okay. But, but everybody has heard at least, even if you're not a church person. You may have, you know, this may be your first time ever in church. You may not consider yourself a, a church person, a Jesus person, whatever. You've probably heard, well, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's kind of a law of the land kind of thing, isn't it? What's this about? Now, what we've come to think that it's about is that it's something about maybe our right or our, our, uh, our, our ability, our privilege to take some sort of revenge, get some retribution for what's happened to us. That's kind of what we think. Uh, maybe it's some sort, in some minds, maybe it's some sort of karma. Well, you know, what goes around comes around, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, man. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, what the Pharisees were doing, and this is what Jesus is talking about here. He's correcting them. What they had done with it was they were applying this to individuals and their their personal lives. Now follow along with me for just a second. They did this because it suited their desires. They knew that the Roman government was not going to give them much justice. They were under a tough government at that time that didn't care about them. And, and they knew that that government was not going to give them justice if something happened to them. So they told people, hey, it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You got to do what you got to do. If somebody does something to you, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Go ahead. That's what they tell them. Turn it loose. Get, get your retribution. Because guess what? Nobody else is going to get it for you. There's no justice in this land. Nobody's going to do anything for you. So you go ahead and you take the revenge that you need to because, well, look, the Scripture says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You see how they were, they were interpreting this, how, what they were teaching. And so for years, they had taught this idea of personal retribution for things done wrong to us personally. Now, what it actually meant was far different from that. If you go back and you read those Old Testament passages, it's in Leviticus that you'll find that this instruction was not given to individuals, but to the court system. This was given to the judges. This was given to the people who were on the judiciary, and they were responsible for making sure that the right penalties were enforced for the crimes. So that there would be no confusion, and more so really, so that there would be no excess and no taking the law into one's own hands, God instructed the judges back in Leviticus on what types of punishment was appropriate for what types of crime. So this teaching, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was not given to individuals so that they could go and take retribution. It was given to the courts so that they could make sure that no more was given than was required by the law. So it was to prevent excess. So, for example, if somebody come, came up to you and punched you and knocked out a tooth, you couldn't kill them for it. Only what? A tooth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was to limit personal revenge. It was to limit excess. That's what this law was given for. So it was no more than that. An eye for an eye, that's it. You can't take anymore. And a tooth for a tooth, that's all you can get. So a person could not be killed for something that only required an eye or a tooth. Now, why was that even necessary? I mean, well, good grief. He knocked out my tooth. Why in the world do I want to kill him? Well, the truth is you do, don't you? The truth is we're all sinful. The truth is we want revenge. God knows us so well. He's got to put in these different laws and regulations because he knows our hearts. We're always going to go to excesses if we're given the right to take the law into our own hands. Now, we love those kind of movies, don't we? Some of you like those old westerns, cowboy movies, whatever, or whoever it is, Clint Eastwood or it's somebody. Some of you like Chuck Norris. You know, they just go out, they take everybody out. They're going to get them all. One person does one thing to their family, they're going after everybody. Tombstone, the movie, you know, all the guys wearing the red sash, they're all going to get it. 
That's what happens. They're all going to get it because one guy did something. That's just the way it goes. You can see we love those things. Man, we get excited. I tell you what, somebody does something, I'm getting all of you. It's just the way it goes. We're all like that. It's a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. It's a result of sin and our sinful natures. We want retribution. But we don't want retribution that's just an eye for an eye. Well, we're even now. We want to take a little bit more, don't we? Get one step ahead. That's just the way that it goes. So if left in the hands of sinful individuals like you and me, justice would inevitably lead to excess and escalated violence. It's just the way that it would go. We would want way more than a tooth. You punch me in the mouth, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get you. I'm coming after you. That's the way it goes. So God gave to the court system this responsibility of regulating justice to make sure that it didn't get out of hand. This wasn't something for individuals to even consider. Understand this. It, it was reserved only for the court system. They were the ones that were to get the retribution to be sure that the punishment fit the crime. Because God knew that in the hands of individuals, the punishment would never fit the crime. It would go far more. He continues in verse 38. He says, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, or verse 39 rather, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Now, here's where a lot of people get confused, okay? Just so you know. A lot of people get confused on this. So what does that mean, don't resist an evildoer? So I guess I guess Christians, we're, you know, we're just supposed to, to not care about evil and people that do wrong stuff. Is that what Jesus is saying? So, you know, I'm just supposed to be a passive sissy Christian uh, who lets people run over me. Is that, okay, I guess that's what Jesus, so it was his example. You know, a lamb led to the slaughter. I mean, I've heard that scripture, you know. Is that what he's saying? I don't think that's even close to what he's saying. Not even close. What he's doing is he's correcting their false interpretation and their false application. They had been using this, as I just said, to justify personal retribution. For me to take the law into my own hands and do what I want to build because of what he just did to me. That's what they were justifying. What Jesus is saying is, hold on a second. That's not what God meant at all. Not even close. It's not for individuals to take personal revenge, Jesus says. Leave that to the courts. Now, let me give you a few things real quick about what he's going to say and spell out in these next few verses. He's not teaching this principle, this don't resist an evildoer principle. He's not teaching this to nations or to the world or governments. He's not teaching that. In fact, we know in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God has given government, God has established those institutions largely for the purpose of being sure that evil is pressed down as much as it can be in this sinful world. Government has the job of regulating and punishing evil and evildoers. That's part of its job. And so it's not a teaching that says to governments or to nations or to the world, don't resist evil. In fact, it's not even a, st- a, a teaching for us that says don't resist evil because we are told resist evil, flee from evil, resist the evil one, Satan himself. But this is, this is not a teaching to nations, to the world. Because if that were the case, if, this, if Jesus is saying to nations, to governments, don't resist evil anymore, then we'd have to say the Bible contradicts itself. We would have to say that police forces and military forces are inherently unbiblical and that anybody serving in those can't be a Christian. That's what we'd have to say. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's talking about here also is not only is it not for nations, but but truthfully, it's not for non-Christians. This is impossible if you're not a Christian. And I, and I, and I, I assume that many of us in here 
today would say wholeheartedly, yeah, I, I claim to be a Christian. I, I believe in Jesus as the Son of God. I believe he died for me. I believe he was raised again. And so, just so you know, this is a teaching only for you, for Christians. It's not for people out there. It's not for the nations. Not for the, This is for us, those who claim that we are disciples of Jesus. Because the truth be told, only those who have Jesus living in them can do what Jesus is commanding us to do. That's it. So he's not talking to nations or to unbelievers, but to those who consider ourselves to be his disciples. And so it's us, it's we, who must take this message to heart regarding our personal relationships. And so this is about you, your personal relationships with those who have done some sort of evil to you. It's not about whether you can serve in the military and law enforcement. I'll just say this. If you are a person who God has commissioned and raised up, and you've been given the role of being an official agent of justice to mute evil, to make sure that evil doesn't spread any farther than it has already. Thank you so much for what you're doing. You are being used by God in that position to make sure that evil is pressed down as far as it can be in this sinful world. Now, I will say this teaching is also for you if you're in a military or law enforcement role of some kind. This teaching is for you as an individual Because without getting too much off on a tangent, those who deal in that realm will be faced over and over and over and over and over with the desire for personal retribution. Will you not? Over and over and over. And so hear what God has to say today. What he's going to do is give us four examples of what can happen. Four examples that made perfect sense back then and are easily relatable to our lives today. We're going to look at these and try to give you some ways to apply this and then some challenges at the end will be done. The first example comes in verse 39 when he says, turn the other cheek. Now let's be honest, if somebody slaps you, somebody goes after you, the first response isn't, hey, would would you mind to do that again? That was awesome. Man, I love that. You know? Do it again, please. Not exactly the first response. Our first response is to what? It's to retaliate. I'm going to clench my fists up, and here I come. Just the way it's going to be. Now, we immediately in that situation, we go into self-defense mode. We want to lash out. And we feel justified in doing so, don't we? Well, look what they did to me. kidding me? Nobody's going to get away with that. So what in the world can Jesus mean here? Turn the other cheek. Somebody slaps you on the right cheek, then turn them the other one as well. The situation that he's describing, if you understand a little bit about their culture back then, the situation he's describing is one in which my personal honor and my personal image are at stake. It's not really about personal safety or the safety of those I'm supposed to protect. It's not what, it's not what he's referencing, not what he's talking about. Slapping a person in the way that Jesus described was a very public way to disgrace them, to humiliate them, to insult them. And that was the purpose. So the purpose here from the person who's doing the slapping toward the person who's getting slapped, the slapper to the slappy, the the, the purpose was to insult them, not just to cause physical harm, but it was directed toward their pride, their dignity, their honor. And so what we have is a situation in which someone, and everybody can relate to this, someone in your life has done something intentionally to shame you, to show you up, to make you look bad, uh, to to hurt your feelings, uh, to call you out, to make you look weak, or something along those lines. Somebody's done something like that to you, Jesus says. 
What are you going to do? So to turn the other cheek here doesn't mean that we don't defend ourselves and we're attacked by a wild man. It doesn't mean that we don't defend and protect those who are defenseless and unprotected. Truth be told, I think any of us in here would say, you start coming into my house uninvited, trying to attack my family, some things are going to start flying around at you, just the way it's going to be, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, but when you do something to me, you've insulted me, you've disgraced me, you've dishonored me, you've humiliated me. Now that's what he's talking about. The point is, he says in that moment... Even if it's something physical that's meant to humiliate us, call us out, make us look bad, hurt our feelings, damage our reputation, we go back to what he says, and his point is that in that situation, we don't retaliate. Do you see the difference? Use Bill as an example again. So far-fetched, it's laughable. But Bill says something to me to insult me. We're in a deacon's meeting, and he calls me out for the purpose of hurting me. What am I going to do? Well, Bill, let me tell you what I think about you. I got some things, Bill. You may start now. You may start now. <laughs> Instead of that, what does Jesus say? I am not to retaliate. Bill does something to insult me. He does something to dishonor me. He does something publicly to humiliate me. And the purpose is all of that from him. Jesus says, leave it alone. Do not retain. In fact, turn the other cheek. Say, go ahead. His point is that we don't retaliate. We don't need to defend our honor. We're not affected by those who try to shame us. Now, in our world, it may play out a little bit differently than it did back then. Odds are we're not going to have somebody come up to you and smack you as a way of humiliating you. That was their public way of doing it. But they're going to do it on social media. They're going to do it with their words. They're going to cut you off in traffic. They're going to do all kinds of things that are going to be meant to kind of get you just a little bit. People insult you. People call you out for what they see as outdated or intolerant views of life on today's world. You're going to have a situation sometime this week where all you want to do is retaliate. To set somebody straight. To defend your reputation. To make sure everybody knows how tough you are and what you're not going to put up with. You'll have a situation like that this week, I guarantee you. And I don't know if guys deal with this more than the ladies do, but I guarantee you this is an issue for our guys here today. Guaranteed. Ladies, I, I, I don't know. I, I ain't one of you. But uh, maybe it is for you too. But I guarantee you it is for the men in the room. They had been taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth giving them their supposed biblical right to retaliate. But Jesus had said, now remember, this isn't for individuals. That teaching was for the courts. You let them handle that stuff. Our standard is higher, he says. You know who our standard is? Our standard is not the law. Our standard is Jesus Christ. And do you know what he did when he was mocked and he was ridiculed and he was spit upon and he was crucified? He turned the other cheek. He refused to retaliate. And on the cross, as he hung there, knowing, as he had said in the Garden of Gethsemane, that I could call down 12 legions of angels and take all of you out. Amen. Do you know what he did? He said, Father, what? Forgive them. Kidding me? I can't. Do you see why this is the hardest thing in the world to do? Do you see it? It's harder than hitting a baseball. Way harder. 
We are not to return evil for evil when our personal honor, dignity, and reputation are insulted or attacked. This is tough. But Jesus did it. We've got a, we've got a, a Savior. We, we have an example. We have a Lord who did all of these things He's commanding us to do. Turning the other cheek is about our desire to get back at somebody for what they do to us. Jesus didn't, and neither can we. The second example he gives, shorter than the first, in verse 40. He says, As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. What in the world does that mean? Well, back then, somebody could sue a person, take them to court, and they could sue them for their inner garment, sort of like a a long one-piece night robe, if you will, that was worn underneath an outer coat-like garment, a cloak, they called it. They could be sued, and they could take the inner garment, but they couldn't be sued and take the outer garment, because that's what kept people warm at night. They they just, whoa, you can't take that from me. Jesus says, hey, they want your inner garment. Why don't you just be so generous, blow them away and say, take anything you want. Nothing belongs to me. What Jesus describes here is a situation in which a person wants to take advantage of you. And he's saying here it's time to forget about our rights. And you can't do that to me. But to go out of our way and to show love and generosity to the one who's trying to take advantage of us. The hardest thing to do. What's happening is some injustice. Something wrong has been done to us. And we normally, we insist on and we fight for our personal rights. Not really, let's be honest. We fight for our rights not because the justice system is being abused here, but because we're being abused, right? I don't have a problem if somebody else is abused. Don't, don't you do that to me. I've got rights. The point that Jesus is making is about being willing to endure injustices and not worry so much about our so-called rights. This is so hard for us as Americans. we got a bill of rights, for crying out loud. Ten of them. Ten of them. And then a whole bunch of other ones that sort of kind of branch off from we got all kinds of rights in America, don't we? Don't you be telling me I can't fight for my rights? What were you talking about? They had once been, these people back then, a very free people. They were under a government that oppressed them. They, they were under leaders that were taking advantage of them. And Jesus is saying, no matter what, even if it was back then or now, what Jesus wants us to realize is that our true citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And that the rights that we may have, let's enjoy them. The rights that we may not have, let's, let, let's give those to the Lord and say, God, I'm a, I'm a citizen of your kingdom regardless. Now, that's not to say that we're to be unconcerned about truth and justice. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We, we should do all that we can to make sure that, that injustice is not carried out. And even Jesus said it at the fake trial that he was given before his crucifixion. He said, what are you guys doing? You don't have the right to do this. But what he was doing was defending the law, not defending himself. And that's his point. He was so unconcerned about himself, and so must we be. The third example he gives in verse 41. He says, you're forced to go one mile. What does he say? Go how many? Go two. (laughs) Now, back then, the Romans were in charge of government where Jesus lived. And by law, they could force anyone at any time to carry something a mile down the road. No matter what you're doing. You're fixing supper. You're out working in the yard. You're sitting on your porch just rocking away. Government agent comes up and says, hey, pick that up, carry it down the road a mile. No. 
Couldn't do that. You couldn't say that to them. They had every right to come to you because you were a conquered people and you picked that up and you carry it down, down the road a mile. You were obligated by law to do that. There was nothing you could do about it. Think of the built up resentment that would have been there for the Jews toward the Romans. They were living under a government that cared nothing for them and nothing for their God. The deck was stacked against them. Their rights constantly being infringed. They weren't in power like they had known before. And the government is making very unfair demands on them. And there's nothing they can do about it. Nothing. They could complain and protest all they wanted. And yet they're still going to have to pick up that suitcase and carry it a mile down the road. That's the way it is. How are they supposed to respond to something like that? Jesus is addressing that that thing. What they wanted was for the Messiah to show up and handle the Romans. Take them out. So that we don't have to do this anymore. We don't have to deal with them anymore. Instead, what Jesus showed up as the Jesus the Messiah, he showed up. You know what he said? Not only go the first mile, but put a smile on your face and cheerfully go too. <laughs> really? Jesus, you're supposed to take out the Romans. The Messiah, clearly in the Old Testament, the Messiah is supposed to deal with all this stuff. And Jesus said, I am dealing with it. Dealing with you. Interesting. He says, do not only what is demanded, but what would be considered above and beyond. Now, some of us have grown to resent the government for a variety of reasons. And it's particularly seen when, when whatever political party that, that you are affiliated with is not in power, that's when you resent the government most, right? So it just switches back and forth every four to eight, 16, 12 years, whatever it may be. And then you got one group that's resenting the government, and the other group's happy. The other group's resenting the government, and so on and so forth. Jesus saying, hey, let's deal with that. There are things the government imposes on you, things the government does. They pass laws. They do things that you don't approve of. But the truth is, it's not just about the government for us. There are people in power over you right now, whether it's a boss, maybe a coach, a parent, somebody like that, who will make life hard on you just because they can. You ever dealt with somebody like that? They like their power. They're going to do to you whatever they can do to you because guess what? They can. Why not? How are you going to respond? What are you going to do? This stuff you deal with every day, isn't it? If you've got a job right now, I guarantee you're playing on a team or you're living in a home with parents, you got somebody in your life who makes it hard on you, a teacher, coach, whomever, just because they can. Now, now, Jesus is talking about our response here. He's not saying, however, that we should not try to do what we can to keep authority from abusing its power. That is inherently sinful and wrong. But we shouldn't do that, he says, because of our hatred and our self-defense. We do it as a way to love our neighbors. Jesus challenges our response to the authorities that are unfair to us. And he says in those cases, put a smile on your face, serve work as unto the Lord, and go the extra mile. Far beyond what is expected. The fourth example he gives is in verse 42. He says, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow you, borrow from you. The evil may be being done in this situation, it's, it's, um, it's a little different. It's somebody who wants something from you. Maybe they're asking for money, whatever. Now, we're not really given an idea of who this is. Jesus doesn't specify this person and he qualifies it with these statements, whatever. But maybe the association with the, the quote-unquote evildoers, maybe these, these folks that are asking something from you, maybe they represent the kind of people that just want something and they don't want to give anything in return and they're not going to pay it back. Uh, maybe it's a Roman citizen in this case who, who just kind of sees an easy mark and, and they know they can get a deal or get away with something. Or maybe it's a reference to people who just kind of make you feel uncomfortable. Man, they're always asking for something. 
They're just needy, and I'm uncomfortable around needy people. They're just a little different. They're a little off. What do we do? Jesus says, gives generously and freely. He said, don't worry about if it's costing you something. That's not necessarily about people who are cheaters. You identify somebody who's just trying to cheat you out of your money. I, I think this goes out the window. But when you don't know, when you, when you can't say, well, you know what, I, I'm not going to give you this because of that. Jesus says, default to generosity and let the Lord handle the rest. In all of this, what is Jesus saying? I think there's one overarching principle. You've been waiting for it the whole time. I told Evan, Evan's working a computer back there. He's doing a great job for us this morning. Thank you, Evan, for stepping up and filling in. I said, it's going to be way into the sermon. Don't you dare put that up on the screen until I'm ready for it. Y'all been waiting on it the whole time, haven't you? Like, is he ever going to get to it? Good grief. He's been preaching for a while. Here's the overarching theme, I think, that Jesus is saying. It's very simple. Die to yourself die to yourself did I mention earlier that this is the hardest thing to do dying to yourself is harder than loving your enemies we can fake that you can't fake dying to yourself not for long some of us of course we've already tuned out some are just thinking, there's no way I can do what Jesus demands. He says, die to yourself. Over and over, these examples are about what is your attitude toward yourself? Die to yourself. Truth is, that was his mission. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus left heaven. He humbled himself. He took on the likeness of a human, a man. And he humbled himself to obedience to the Lord, even to death on a cross. He died to himself. That was his mission, to die to himself so that he might save the world. And it was also the message of Jesus over and over and over again. That's what he did. That's what he commanded. That's what he called his disciples to do, was to die to themselves so that he might live through them. That's what this is all about. Because the truth be told, you can't turn the other cheek. You can't go the extra mile. You can't give generously and freely. You can't do all the things that Jesus commands unless you have died to yourself. And that's the reason we don't. Because we are unwilling so often to die to ourselves. Why, why should we do that? I'll give you three quick things here. Number one, as I've alluded to, it is commanded. You look in the Beatitudes, the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in the very first part of Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who have died to themselves so that Christ may live in them. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone wants to be my disciple, here's what you do. You know, the first thing he says, deny yourself. Essentially, die to yourself. Paul said in Galatians, he said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've died to myself. John chapter 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Die to yourself. It's commanded. Secondly, it brings freedom. This is one of the great things about what God does for us. You would think this is just, God is just sort of a sadist. And he's just wanting, you know, he gets pleasure out of just beating us down. But he says when you die to yourself, you gain freedom. Because let, let's be honest, how much of the everyday and every week kind of issues and turmoil that you have, if you were to trace it back, how much would you have to be honest and say, you know what, 
I'm the reason. It's self. It's me. It's my desires. It's my selfishness. It's, it's my self-reliance. It's my, my self-defense. And boy, how pitiful it is. <clears throat> and we've all been there. For, for us to go around trying to prove that we're better and tougher than those who have hurt us. How frustrating it is to be caught up in trying to always get back and get ahead of those who have done something to you. There is great freedom in self-forgetfulness. <clears throat> that is the life that God has called us to because there is only slavery in being self-focused and self-defensive. There is great freedom in dying to yourself. It is then and only then when the life of Jesus Christ can be filled up and lived in and out of you. And then thirdly, it has impact. I mean, you think through each of these examples. How would the person who insults you respond if you don't fight back, won't take the bait, you won't retaliate? When I was a freshman in high school, one of the things that all the seniors liked to do to the freshmen was some sort of initiation rite. And one of the things they did was what they called a Mongolian. I have no idea why they called it that, but they would grab you, somebody would throw you on the ground, and all ten seniors would just jump right on top. So there you are, laying on the bottom. They grabbed me, I just laid on the ground. They go ahead. They all piled on. Kind of waited a second. And they all, one by one, got off. They looked at me and said, you're no fun. You don't fight back. I said, I'm not stupid, you know. may not be fun, but I'm not a dummy. I knew if you fight back, it's going to be worse, right? What, what kind of thing would it say to the people that insult you? To the folks that want to argue with you on social media all the time, want to call you, I want to blast you, whatever it may be. Why doesn't this person care that they've been insulted, shamed, disregarded, humiliated? Christians are to be so secure. And listen, we already are. We just don't know it. We're to be so secure in our Savior that our reputations don't matter. Say about me what you want. You cannot change my status with Jesus Christ. And that's all I'm worried about. How would the person...